the church, or the message of the church in Philadelphia. Verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not, he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, precious Son, precious Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us, for causing us to gather for worship of you this morning. We pray now that you would give us an ear to hear what your Spirit says to the church. Lord, help us to not only have ears, but eyes, hearts, and Lord, hands and feet that obey. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified for the glory of Christ and for the sake of your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I do once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and once again welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Uh, we come now this morning to the sixth of the seven churches addressed by our risen, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church in Philadelphia. Now, you should know that the Philadelphia that we are speaking about is not the Philadelphia here in North America, but it is one of those cities located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Last week we mentioned, of the seven churches... Two receive no commendation from our Lord. The church of Sardis, and as we shall see next week, Lord willing, the church in Laodicea. Their deeds were incomplete in the sight of the one who sees all. Of the seven churches, there are two that receive no rebuke. They were faithful witnesses to Christ. In spite of whatever tribulation and difficult providences they were encountering or found themselves in, they remain faithful to Christ. They receive only commendation, the church of Smyrna, and this morning the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was established in 189 B.C., that is before the birth of Christ, by a king named Eumenes, Eumenes II. Eumenes called the city Alisphere. Alisphere also means Philadelphios. And he named this city Philadelphios out of the great love that he had for his brother, Apollos. Hence, the name, the city, or the one who loves his brother. The city of the one who loves his brother. The city of the one who loves his brother, or the city of brotherly love. Located the city was um, along this strategic road that linked Asia and Europe together. Uh, Philadelphia became an important center of trade and commerce. So, as an important city, it was kind of a crossroad or a door leading from one uh, region to another. Uh, it was where Greek culture spread south and east into Asia Minor, Syria, and Persia. It was a city, again, that was a kind of gateway or door, once again, from east to west. The city was located also in close proximity to volcanoes. 
and therefore it experienced many earthquakes. Sardis in Philadelphia suffered widespread damage from an earthquake during the reign of Tiberius, that is, a Caesar, in A.D. 17. Uh, just to let you know, kind of a side note, A.D., the word means, or the abbreviations are, Anadoma. Anadoma means the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. Every year after the resurrection of our Lord is referred to as the year of our Lord in anticipation of the Lord's return. Anadoma. Although Sardis was close, closer in the, to the epicenter of where the earthquake took place, Philadelphia actually experienced the greater destruction and aftershocks many years thereafter this big earthquake. Uh, Roman historians note that the disaster relief was granted to, to Philadelphia from Rome in the form of forgiveness, meaning that Philadelphia would not have to pay their yearly tribute or yearly tax to Rome in order for them to, in order to help them rebuild their city. In gratitude for waiving this tax to Rome, the political leaders of Philadelphia erected a tower, a towering monument in honor of Tiberius Caesar, and they renamed their city from Philadelphia to Necro Caesar, or Caesar's New City. The city would hold that name for the next 30 years, but then they would give it another name. As a matter of fact, the city would go through a number of name changes over its history, but those who lived in the city continued to call the city Philadelphia. The newly rebuilt city took a name to honor its imperial patron and rescuer, but Philadelphia's economic weakness slowed its recovery, which prolonged their dependence on Rome. To the church in Philadelphia, along with Smyrna, our Lord gives no rebuke, but only con commendation. As with Smyrna, the challenge confronting that they challenged, they were challenged uh, by being confronted by those who opposed their faith. There was external opposition from the Jewish community. Instead of embracing the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, they rejected him, showing that they were not true Jews, but they were a synagogue of Satan. Both these churches, Sardis and Philadelphia, lacked resources. The church in Smyrna was poor. The church in Philadelphia was considered weak or powerless. And yet both of these churches held fast to Christ and to their confession of Him in spite of tribulation. In spite of constant changes that were taking place in Philadelphia, names, Rulers, in spite of fear that people had of earthquakes, and in spite of constant persecution that the church was facing and experiencing, they held fast to Christ. Our Lord said, You have kept my word of perseverance. Despite the pressure, despite persecution, the church of Philadelphia did not deny Christ. They would not apostatize Him. On this Lord's Day Sabbath, brothers and sisters, we are hoping to learn something from the church in Philadelphia that we might, by God's help, emulate. Therefore, let us consider this morning three points concerning the church in Philadelphia who appears to be weak. Number one, the key and the door. The key and the door. This is verses uh, seven, but let's begin in verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. The glorified Lord of glory announces to the church in Philadelphia that he is holy and true. Literally in the Greek it is the holy the true. Christ is set apart from all others. He is the Holy One of God, which is an exclusive title. When you hear the Holy One, 
that belongs to Yahweh alone. When Christ refers to himself as the Holy One, he is calling back to a familiar phrase, the Holy One of Israel, who is none other than Yahweh himself. There is a similar construction found in chapter 3, verse 14, which says the faithful and true witness. And so the phrase could be rendered also as this, Jesus, the holy and true witness. It is the holy, the true, and also the holy, the true witness. The fire and light radiating from the Son of Man and the opening vision symbolized holiness, divine holiness. Jesus alludes to, again, the Old Testament title of Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, he claims for himself. Christ, as the Holy One of Israel, bears witness, and his witness is true, that he is the promised seed of the woman who has come to destroy the works of Satan. He is testifying to himself. The church was being persecuted. Why? Because of their witness to the Jews. Their witness to the Gentiles that Christ is the Messiah. That he is the promised and anticipated Messiah who has come. Who has lived, who has died, who has risen from the grave. The Messiah has come. Place your faith in him. That was the witness of the church. The Lord comes to the church that has been opposed because of that witness. Because of their testimony. And he acknowledges before he acknowledges their deeds, he, he makes it clear that he is aware of their burden. Before he says anything good about what they're doing, he makes it clear that they have believed in Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the, Savior, the Savior of the world, and they are not incorrect for placing their faith in him. They're being opposed because of this witness, because of this message. And Christ comes to them and says, I am, he says, the Holy One. I am the true. I am witnessing that the Messiah that you have been looking for, it is he. Those who claim to be Jews, those who claim to be God's people, claim that Christ was merely a messianic pretender, that he was a false Messiah, that he was not the Christ. In his opening statement, though, Christ assures the church that they have made no error by placing their faith in him. He is, in fact, the holy. He is, in fact, the true. And those who believe in him shall never be put to shame. Amen. They were being shamed for their faith. And Christ is saying, have no shame. Be not ashamed. He is the holy. He is the true. Christ is he who was promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Revealed in due time as the Messiah, the Savior of his people. Christ is the Holy. He is the true witness who will empower His people to be faithful witnesses to His truth. Christ will empower His people. Listen to this phrase and take it as yourself, to be true Jewish witnesses. Christ will empower you, you, to be true Jewish witnesses. You are the people of God. In contrast to those who say they are Jews but are not, they lie. Christ is the true, and his witnesses testify to the truth of Christ. Church, saints here, fear not the opposition of the world to your faith in Christ. You shall never be put to shame, for he is holy, he is true. Speaking to our dear brother Ralph, who it would be good for us to reach out to him once more again, is in the hospital this morning. Last night, saying, he was saying to me, I feel like I'm on the brink of eternity, essentially. How do I know that I will get there? Brother, I said to him, what do you know? What do you know about how to be saved? His response is this. Well, I know that if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins, that I will be saved. I said to him, brother, you may not remember every sermon. You may, you may not be able to quote every theologian. But you hold fast to that, brother. Hold fast to that and you will not be put to shame. Interesting then that Christ proclaims that he has the key. He has the key of David. What is this key? You will remember in chapter 1 and verse 18, Christ says, I am alive forevermore, he says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Here our Lord is quoting Isaiah 22:22, the one having the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. It's a callback to an episode in the book of Isaiah 22 when a steward named Shidna was rebuked for his unfaithfulness to Christ, or to God. In his place, God established a faithful servant named Eliakim. He was called the administrator of the kingdom of David, having on his shoulder the key of the house of David, or access to the king and the authority to dispense resources of the kingdom. Eliakim served as a type of Christ, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. Meaning what? Well, let's get to this. In the opening vision, the Son of Man holds the keys of what? Death and Hades, signifying that he has the right to unlock the grave and to release captives. And here we see the authority of Christ over entrance into the Messianic kingdom as the royal heir of David. Amen. He is the one who said, they are Jews, but they are not. On those who say they are truly the people of God, but they are not the people of God. They were saying that the Christians are believing in a false Messiah, that they are not in the kingdom of God. Christ says that they are lying. They believed, these false Jews, that they somehow had the key of the kingdom. That it was their right to say who was in the kingdom and who was not in the kingdom. Christ is saying that it is not up to them to determine who is in the kingdom and who was not in the kingdom. But rather that he has the key of the kingdom. That he is the rightful heir of David's throne. And that he determines who is in the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. Yes. Amen. In fact, G.K. Beale notes this quotation could be a polemic against local, the local synagogue that is, of the Jews, which claimed that they were, uh, that, which claimed that only those worshipping within their doors and the doors of their synagogue could be, could, could be considered God's true people, which may even have, which it may also mean, he says, they, had, they may have excommunicated Christian Jews from their gathering. They closed the doors of the Christians. The Christians were not allowed to worship. They were seen as uh, excommunicated from the house of God. And Christ makes it clear that they are the ones who are excommunicated. That he has actually shut the doors to them. He is the Holy One. He is the true. He is the Messiah. He not only holds the keys of death and life, but being the true son of David, he is the one who holds the keys of the kingdom. The false Jews no longer wielded the power of salvation and judgment. They no longer had the authority to hold these keys. They forfeited. They were unfaithful, like Shidna. And so Christ gives the keys to a faithful witness, which we'll see in a moment is the church. Christ determines who has access into his kingdom and who does not have access into his kingdom. He is the one who opens the royal door, if you will. And if Christ opens this door into the kingdom, no one can close it. And if Christ closes this door to the kingdom, no one can open it. Now, this corrects some of our misunderstandings, doesn't it? This passage, dear ones, is not about favorable opportunities that are open doors before us. This passage is not about, fill in the blank, a job door being opened, a relationship door being opened, a house potentially being yours being opened, etc., 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 fill in the blank. It's not about that. Doors that we may or may not have access to in this temporal world, to use this passage that is speaking about the power of the Messiah giving access or denying access into the kingdom of God and transferring it, translating it, putting it to meaning potential worldly opportunities that are open doors or closed doors is dragging holy writ through the mud. Those who place their faith in Christ can be assured of this. The doors to the true synagogue, Amen. the kingdom of God, yes. oh, they are open. Amen. They are open, and they are opened by Christ. They have been opened by Christ to all who hear the gospel. And, and what a wonderful job our brothers are doing each morning in liturgy, sharing the law, sharing the gospel. 
And we pray that as you are coming this morning, those of you who have ears to hear, that you are hearing, the door is wide open. Praise God for the way in which we have shared, the brothers shared redemption this morning. We are redeemed. The door is open to all those who place their faith in Christ, who lived, who died, who is risen from the grave, to save sinners from judgment. If you believe upon Christ, you will be saved. The door is open. Faith in Christ alone grants you access into this house of worship, His house, the true synagogue, and you will be a true citizen of the kingdom of God. But, if you deny the Messiah, if you deny your Messiah, if you reject the Holy One, if you accuse Christ of being untrue, then the door is closed to you. And it shall not be opened. There is no other route. There is no window through which you can climb through in order to get into the kingdom of God. Do not deceive yourself. Christ is the only way. The next door that John will see open is the door into heaven in John in Revelation 4.1 through which John will enter and see the Holy One seated on the throne and the Lamb. Because Jesus holds David's key. No one can lock Christ's people out of the city sanctuary of God. The Jews are saying, you're excluded, you're locked out. And Christ is saying, no, they're excluded. They're locked out. They're rejecting me, so I reject them. You, in fact, have an open door. Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enter by me, he will be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an encouragement our tender Lord gives to the church, persecuted but triumphant. I said to Brother Ralph, as I say to all of those, when you doubt, when you fear, remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the good news. Lay in your bed even. Remind yourself even in your bed, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins, I will be saved. What a wonderful way to exit this earth. What a wonderful way to close your eyes. If I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins, and I will be saved. Remind yourself of that glorious truth. Let it be the, the peaceful pillow that, that you rest your head on at night. You are not expelled. You are not denied access. The door is open to you and it shall never be closed if you enter through the true door of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, encouragement to the powerless. The key in the door, number one. Secondly, the, the encouragement to the powerless. This is verses 8 and 9. I won't read them again. Our Lord, after assuring the church that their stance was not in vain, that He is truly the holy, that He is the true Savior who has opened the door of the kingdom to all who trust in Him, Christ encourages the church that He is now aware of their deeds. As Christ declares to all the churches, He says to, to these uh, here in Philadelphia, I know. Christ knows that the church in Philadelphia has kept His word. And that they have not denied his name in spite of the fact that, listen to this phrase, that they have so little power. What is this little power that Christ speaks of? When we make arguments, this is important, proper hermeneutics argues from the text outward. Not out of the text, inward. This is called exegesis eisegesis, the technical terms. So in order to get a sense of what this little power is that Christ speaks of, let's examine the text in order to get clarity. The Lord notes twice in verse 8 and 9 that He has the authority to open the door that no one can shut and to shut the door that no one can open. Christ, as the Messiah, the Savior of His people determines who is a part of the kingdom, and he was excluded from the kingdom. The door uh, is to be put before the church. And in spite of this their seemingly powerless message and lack of influence, because they have been excluded, Christ still empowers the church to be a witness to that open door. This statement about little power I am arguing, therefore, is in relation to their spiritual influence in the city. That they, and some say it was because they were a small church. That's, I, I think, 
not the point that Christ is communicating. If the point is, small churches have little power, then most churches in America have little power. Rather, because they were opposed on all sides, because they were excluded and also being uh, were, uh, opposed not only by the Jews, but the Jews were spreading a message about them that they were worshipping a false god, Christ was saying to the church, not that they do not have power, or that there was no power present in the gospel, but most likely Christ is quoting to them what's said about them, or what others in the church are saying about themselves. Christ knows. Christ knows what is potentially being said about them in Philadelphia, or potentially what some of the people in the church are saying about themselves. We have so little power. We have so little influence. And compared to who? And compared to the Jews, who seemingly had more influence and more power. Now the Jews may have been saying this about the church, they have so little power. Or the church may have been saying this about themselves. Whatever the case may be, Christ knows. This is what is being said. And haven't you at times felt as though you had very little power? As though you were ineffective? Hasn't it been said about maybe this church or other churches? They're so small. They have so little influence. They have so little power, as it were. Have you not been discouraged, maybe this past week during your family gathering, that your witness for Christ was so poor? That opportunities that you wish would arise on a regular basis don't come as often as you'd like them to. Have you not felt at times as though you are powerless in your witness for Christ? If you say no, uh, then teach me some things, because we all have ebbs and flows and moments where we feel as though we are completely powerless. The church was being excluded from worship. The church was being accused of worshiping a dead false Messiah. Ridiculed as pretending to be the people of God, but not being the people of God. The Jews believed they had the authority to exclude the church from the kingdom and made these accusations that would have been widely known in Philadelphia. The reputation of the church was that they were powerless in their influence. But Christ comes to the church and says this, Not so. Behold, I have put before you, this is important, I have put before you an open door. A door which no one can shut. Christ has the keys of salvation. The way of salvation is found in Christ. And he has given the church this message to call sinners to enter into that door or enter into enter through that door. He has put before the church, and oh, Satan may try again and again, an open door. Satan may try to close that door. But Christ has opened it. Therefore, no one, not even Satan, can close that door. No one will be able to shut the doors of the gospel. It is open to anyone who believes upon his name. The church has kept the word of Christ. They have not denied his name in spite of thinking or being thought about that they have little power. The perseverance of the church would be understood as the theological basis for Christ giving the church this open door because they've persevered. They have pressed on, they have pressed on in spite of opposition. When you feel powerless saints, remember, your witness to Christ, that He has entrusted to you an open door, that He's given to you the authority to call sinners to enter through that door. And no one will close that door. Christ has opened that door. And He has given you the power, the authority, call sinners, enter through the door. He says in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those in the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them, listen to what he says, I will make them come and bow at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan, again, most likely refers to the fact that the unbelieving Jews in the community were persecuting Christians. One of the early church fathers, Ignatius, actually reveals that this conflict between Jews and Christians continues on in Philadelphia into the second century. 
as these false people of God. And not because of their ethnicity. Not because they were Jewish ethnic-wise, but because they, they, they placed their faith in someone other than Christ. That's why they were false Jews. They believed that when they gathered for worship, that they were in the presence of God. That they were worshiping God. Christ calls their... Synagogue simply means assembly. Christ calls their assembly an assembly of Satan. Uh, not an assembly that gathers to worship the one true God, but rather an assembly that gathers to worship Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Because when they gathered, they denied Christ. As in the days of Christ in John 8, Christ says of them, If you were true sons of Abraham, then you would believe in me as Abraham did. Jesus says in John 8.42, If you were of your father, if God were your father, then you would love me, for I came from God. But therefore, when they assembled to worship, it was not God that they worshipped, but Satan. Because Satan opposes Christ. And anyone who opposes Christ is in league with Satan. They who claim to be the people of God, they are liars. What is more, Christ points to a fulfillment of prophecy. And here it is. In verse 8 he says, I have put, I have given, concerning the people of God, in verse 9 he says, I will cause, in verse 9b he says, I will make, all of these are a collective allusion to prophecies found, listen to these three verses, write them down, Isaiah 45, 14, Isaiah 49, 23, and Isaiah 60 and verse 14. I'll say them again. Isaiah 45, verse 14. Isaiah 49, verse 23. And Isaiah 60 and verse 14. Uh, in Isaiah 45, verse 14, it is prophesied that Gentiles will confess the true God of Israel as being the one true God. Fulfilled in the book of Acts. In Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 60... God promises that His people, or that His people's oppressors, will come and bow down at their feet and acknowledge this, that they are the city of the Lord, the, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Likewise, Jesus, the true and holy Messiah, will bring opponents to bow at the church's feet and confess that she is the Lord's beloved. There's a reversal. This is not the final day, though, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That, that's not what Christ is pointing to. Here, Christ is describing a closer, grace-filled foretaste of the day when ethnic Jews will come in humiliation to place their faith in Christ. That they will see that salvation, yes, is found in Christ alone. How so? In Isaiah's prophetic imagery, the Gentiles were to be saved as they came to bow at Israel's feet and confess, Surely God is with you and there is no other. Isaiah sees this for Gentiles. And now again, the tables are turned. It is the multi-ethnic church to whom Jews will come and bow down as they recognize and worship Christ, confessing that salvation is in Christ alone and in no one else. That, that Christ is God's Christ and that there is no other. There's a turning of the table. Isaiah sees a, a, a time when Gentiles will come and believe in God. And now John sees a time, Christ foretells of a time when Jews will come and they will bow at Christ's feet. This is what Paul sees. It's what Paul sees in his mission to the Gentiles. In Romans 10 through 11, God sees Christ's mercy extended to the Gentiles in the gospel. And this extension of grace evokes what in the Jews? Jealousy. These are the true people of God and the Jews. They commonly recognize that Christ is the Messiah. And they will be grafted into the family of faith. And the word is really regrafted. Regrafted into the family of faith, into God's one true covenant, through placing their faith in Christ alone. There is a, a call to the Gentiles by the Jews, used by Christ, the King of the Jews. And then from the Gentiles, a call to the Jews to turn to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
G.K. Beale says, Isaiah's prophecies that the end-time salvation of Israel would spark off the salvation of the Gentiles has been fulfilled, listen to this, in an ironic manner. This is likely true even if a remnant of Jewish Christians composed part of the Philadelphian church since the majority would have been Gentiles. In the church in Philadelphia, there were most likely even Jews. So this, this vision of seeing Jews come to faith in Christ began at the resurrection of Christ and continues until the return of Christ. The influx of Jews that we find foretold in Paul's writing in Romans that all Israel will be saved. That is not saying that every single ethnic person in, who is Jewish ethnically will ever be saved. Rather, it is all of those who are of the Jewish ethnicity who belong to Christ will be saved. In that sense, all Israel will be saved. And also, all the true Israel will be saved. I believe it's a collection of both. That it is a collection of both ethnic, ethnic Israel and Gentiles who are also referred to as Israel. And it's been ongoing since the resurrection of Christ. Since Christ ascended into glory, he will continue to call all those who are his into his kingdom through this door. The point of encouragement that Christ gives to the church is simply this. That they were experiencing some type of tribulation. That they were experiencing some type of opposition. But it's not unexpected. It's been foretold by prophets long ago. And in God's providence, He has blessed them, the church in Philadelphia, and you and I also, to be partakers in His redemptive purposes. God has seen this, and we are partaking in it. So church, do not back down in your witness. Do not be silent. Though you be opposed, though you be persecuted, Christ shows that those who oppose Him, ironically, even those who oppose Him, will be the ones who most likely, most who will be the most unlikely ones to hear and believe, and be made new creatures through the gospel. Isn't that what we want? Even for those who oppose Christ, to see through the Spirit that Christ is the only way to be saved. Isn't that what we want for all of those who, right now, who are rejecting Christ? You were with them this past week, weren't you? Uh, you saw the unbelievers in your family. You saw the way they talked. You saw what was important to them. You saw what they valued. And I pray that in the front of your mind, not the back of your mind, but in the front of your mind was a desire to see them saved. The most unlikely ones, to see them come to saving faith in Christ. Christ assures the church that through this open door of salvation, through their bold witness, some of the most violent persecutors of the church will be those who come to the feet of the church and confess that Christ truly has loved them. And they will repent and believe. They will know. Hopefully they will know salvifically, rather than knowing in judgment. But the encouragement from Christ is this, keep his word. Do not deny his name. Press on in that manner. Press on in these deeds. Do not relent. Do not capitulate. Uh, though it appears as though you have little power, little influence, little effect, that, that no one hears, and maybe even that no one cares, that you're wasting your time. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're fearful of that moment of sharing the gospel. Christ assures this. He has the keys of the kingdom. He has opened the door. He has given you the authority to call all sinners, all who hear, even the most unexpected ones, even the most unlikely ones, to enter through that door. And they will be saved if they repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. That's good news. Let's final, finally consider our third point, the promise of the overcomer. This is verses 10 through 13. The promise from Him who is holy and true is this. Because the church in Philadelphia has kept the word of perseverance, Christ will keep them from the hour of testing. Christ's word of perseverance, what is it? Christ commands His church to persevere even in times of difficulty. 
Christ commands his church to persevere. His word, when he says, uh, my word of perseverance, that is his command to persevere. The church in Philadelphia has kept his word. They have obeyed his command. They are persevering through trials. Christ commends them for obeying him. I have commanded you, he says, to persevere through difficulty, through to persevere through tribulation, and you have obeyed that command. And because you have obeyed the command in persevering, Christ says, then I will preserve you in an hour of testing that is coming. Because they were keeping Christ's command, Christ promises to reciprocate their perseverance by preserving them from the hour of testing, one that will come upon the whole world to test those who are dwelling on the earth. Now, what is this hour of testing? Well, notice first, as Dennis Johnson notes in his commentary, the brevity or the length of time of this testing. In contrast to periods of which we will hear of later, three and a half days, 42 months, 1,000 years, Christ says that this time of testing will be an hour of testing. A relatively shorter period of time. Also then, notice the target. These Christians will be protected spiritually from any threats that are posed to their faith in this hour of tribulation. This hour of tribulation is intended by God to be a penal judgment of unbelievers. We know this by this. There's this phrase, those dwelling on the earth. You see that there in your verses. It is a technical term that is used throughout Revelation for unbelievers. When we come to Revelation and we see this phrase, those dwelling on the earth, it is always in reference to unbelievers. It is a term used for unbelieving idolaters, actually, who suffer under various forms of tribulation, and, and it is retributive uh, tribulation. Therefore, the church, Christ promises, will not suffer when punishment is delivered to the ungodly. When the hour of punishment comes to the ungodly, the church will not be those who suffer with him. Now, this testing is most likely an intensification at some point in their future. We don't know if it was their future or in the future in general. But it is a tribulation hour that has already been set into motion. Important. The hour of tribulation, Christ says it to the church in Philadelphia. Has that hour passed for them? Or is that a continual hour that we are still anticipating? And then let's also keep this uh, clear. We are living in the tribulation. It's a circular or a secular tribulation. Meaning this. In some places, tribulation is worth worse than others. In some places, tribulation uh, uh, people experience, the church experiences, tribulation Physically, maybe more intense than others. Nonetheless, we are experiencing tribulation. This could be an intensification of a widespread tribulation, a widespread persecution that is in their future, or in the future that happened between their time and our time, or maybe something even further in the future. Whatever it is, Christ promises to preserve his church during that hour. We also will see another phrase that will come upon the whole world. See that there? Different from the phrase, those dwelling on the earth. Make that distinction. The phrase that will come upon the whole world is different from the phrase dwelling on the earth. Now, there are some possibilities to this as well. Three at least. It could mean that there will be a universal effect. That there will be persecution all over the world. But the church will be preserved when the judgment comes on the ungodly. It could also mean that there is universal protection unleashed against... Uh, I'm sorry. It could mean that there is a universal persecution unleashed against the church in an hour that is to come. That's seen in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, the first point and the, and the one that I just made, they sound similar. But it also could mean... Uh, it can also refer to the final downfall of the judgment of the ungodly worldly system at the second coming of Christ, which is also referred to as an hour 
in Revelation 11, 14, 15, 17, and 19. So, so there's a universal one that the church could be protected from. There's kind of a downfall of, of an ungodly worldly system that will fall at the second coming of Christ, or it's a period of trial that will come upon Asia Minor, then, and the limited world that they knew of at that time. Those are all possibilities. In Asia Minor, the world to them was limited in scope. And so when Christ refers to the whole world, it could be a tribulation that came uh, during the Diocletian era. And during the Diocletian era, Rome put out an edict that all Christians were to be persecuted, imprisoned, or killed. During that time, that could have been seen as the world persecution that the church was going to experience. And they did. Philadelphia did survive during that persecution. Many options, aren't there? The main thing to cling to, though, is this. The anchor of hope is Christ in the midst of every trial. The anchor of hope to cling to in the midst of every trial is Christ. We shall be preserved by Christ. Christ will protect His people. Listen, not from suffering. Let's pause very briefly here. We live in the midst of tribulation. That may intensify for us here. Know that tribulation and persecution is intense though for other brothers and sisters elsewhere throughout the world. It may not be physically intense here, but it is physically intense in other places. But we must not think for one moment that the church is centralized to North America. That, that we are uh, the home base for the church. We're not. We must not allow this thinking that the church uh, is only experiencing tribulation when we experience tribulation. The word of God is banned in North Korea. Banned in Afghanistan. Banned in Pakistan. The brethren are opposed in Burma, India, Iran, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Somalia, Libya, and in different provinces in China. No, the church is experiencing tribulation. And it may be intense for them there now, and right for us here today. But that could change at any moment. The promise from Christ to all those who place their faith in Him is this. That the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That she, we, will be preserved from that hour of testing. And the perseverance that Christ speaks of is this. Apostasy. Preserved meaning what? We will be preserved from repudiating the name of Christ. We will be preserved no matter what kind of a tribulation we experience from denying the name of Christ. Now, there are some who argue that this verse in Revelation 3.10 is meant to uh, convey that Christ will be physically removing the church altogether from any kind of trouble that comes their way, you know this as the rapture. The argument from 3.10 is that Christ is communicating that there will be a rapture before a tribulation in order to save the church from any kind of intensified persecution. They believe that this is what is meant by the phrase, keep them. One theologian notes that this is in contradiction, though, to the high priestly prayer of Christ who prayed in John 17, 15, Father, I ask what? Not that you take them out of the world, but that you, same phrase, keep them from the evil one. Christ says, I will keep you from the evil one. That is, I will keep you from being snatched out of the hand that will never lose any of those who belong to him. Christ denies the physical removal of the church from tribulation, but rather affirms that he will spiritually protect her from the devil or keep her from the evil one in that time of testing. Pastor, are you denying 
The rapture? Absolutely not. When the trumpet sounds, we shall all be caught up with him in the air. And the kingdom will be consummated. But what about the tribulation? Have I not just said that just because you're not experiencing tribulation doesn't mean the church universal or Catholic is not experiencing tribulation? How many countries did we just mention? How many men and women of God there are that are our brothers and sisters right now? How many of them are experiencing the tribulation and cannot wait for the trumpet to sound? No, when the trumpet sounds, we will be raptured. We will be caught up with him. And all things will be made new. There is an overcoming theme here, isn't there? Christ says, by way of encouragement, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Your crown. We've been seeing throughout this, this teaching revelation, there, there is a, a kingdom, uh, a royalty kind of motif that is being pushed, a narrative that is being pushed through the book of Revelation. Christ is saying, if you hold fast, there is a crown, whether you like it or not. Those of us who say, I know, I can't wear, you, Christ is saying, you have one. It's yours. You will wear it. What does Christ say that you have? A crown. It's yours in an already not set, already not yet sense. It's yours. In Second Timothy, Paul, as he was approaching the finish line, saw what was ahead. And what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Christ encourages the church to hold fast to what you have. If your faith is in Christ, then hold fast to that faith in Christ. And there is laid up for you what was laid up for Paul and for all those who share in his faith. And what is it? Second Timothy 4.2 In the future there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness. Amen. Christ says, hold fast to what you have. It's yours. In an already not, not yet sense, it's yours. Hold fast to Christ. And Paul says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Can you imagine Christ crowning you? Are we just saying a moment ago, crown him, crown him. Yes, crown him. For those who do not repudiate the name of Christ, he crowns you in righteousness. He crowns you with his righteousness. You reign with Christ. Paul says, and not only to me, since we would think, we might think, well, it's Paul though. Of course Paul will receive a crown. But Paul says, not only to me, but also to all, to all who loved his appearing. Are you longing for the return of Christ? Or are you anticipating the day when the trumpet will sound, when Christ will break through the clouds, when He will return in glory in the same way that He ascended in glory? Then Paul says of you and of me and all of those like you and me that there is a crown of righteousness that will be given to all of those who love, who will anticipate, who wait for His return. So then in verse 12, to Him who overcomes... Though you experience tribulation in the world, you have peace in Christ because you have, because Christ has overcome the world. Amen. And if you, dear pilgrim, are in Christ, and if you hold fast to Christ, then you will overcome and you will complete your pilgrimage, and there will be a crown awarded to you by the King of Kings. Twelve says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What a beautiful ending way. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Think about a temple. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is the name, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Uh, different elements, but they're all pointing to the same promise concerning the end time, our end time, eternal fellowship that we will share with Christ and our eternal identification with Christ and his new name. We shall be a pillar In his temple, Christ is conveying, you will never leave his presence. You will be firmly established in his presence. You will never be out of the presence of God. You will remain like a pillar remains in the temple. You will not be moved. 
sin will not move you. Temptation will not move you. Tribulation will not move you. Opposition will not move you. You will be eternally in the presence of God. And more than that, as Peter described, that, that when we assemble together even now, we get a foretaste of that which is ours later. When we assemble, the presence of God is with us. We are holy stones being brought together wherein dwells the glory of God. In each assembling of the temple of the Old Testament, what was the final word after the temple was assembled? And the glory of God filled the temple. And Paul says of the church, when we assemble together, the glory of God fills this temple. And Christ promises that there will come a day when you will never leave His presence. You will never leave. His presence will be among us eternally. We will be His people. He shall be our God. And there is no physical temple in Jerusalem. Now those who, you'll see in a moment, he says that the, the temple comes down. We're seeing the temple come down and then it, it disappears. It disappears because we are in the temple. I see the city of God coming down, Christ says. Later it will be described in its cubic form. It is a temple. It comes down and then I don't see this, the temple anymore because I'm in it. I am in the presence of God. No earthquake will shake this temple. As earthquakes shook Philadelphia. What beautiful language is that? They, he knew the earthquakes they experienced, the, the devastation they experienced, but you will be a pillar in this temple and it will not be moved. Christ's statement is, He will write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is a call back to Ezekiel chapter 48 where the new Jerusalem is called, it's, here's the name, the Lord is there. The new city that you and I will be in is called this, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The Lord is there and, and you will be there. Imagine that. The Lord is there and so am I. That's here and now. That's why we should not avoid the gathering of the saints. For no reason. The Lord is there. Why should I wake up in the morning and go to church? The Lord is there. Why should I be attentive when the word of God is preached? The Lord is there. Why should I not go to the other functions that are calling my name over there? Because the Lord is not there. The Lord is here. That's why we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves. Christ is here. The saints are here. Where else would you rather be? It is a promise of the new covenant. It's the promise of the new covenant given a new name. Our sins will be forgiven. He will remember our sins no more. He will, we will be His God and he will, we shall be His people. It's by that name, the, the name given to Christ. What is that new name? Oh, we think, well, He's not going to be Jesus anymore. Yes, it is that name. It is that name that God gave Him. That name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, the title of Jesus, the, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lamb of God. There are many, aren't there? We will have His name upon us. The bride receives the name of her husband. And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies about Israel's new name, new future, through the death and resurrection of our Christ. The titles that Christ speaks of is the titles of victory. He's the Lamb victorious, the Lion of Judah, the Prophet, Priest, and King, on and on and on. And he gives us that name in him. Dear saints, is not all of these things enough to encourage you to persevere? To not repudiate the name of Christ? Is not all of these things enough encouragement to inspire us to press on in spite of persecution, in spite of tribulation? Is not all of this enough to hold fast to Christ? Yes. When you're opposed, when you feel as though you have little power, little influence, when it appears as though the door of salvation has been shut, look to Christ. He is holy and true. He is the eternal one. He is the Messiah. And he witnesses to the fact that he is the only, the only Savior of the world. Christ holds the key of salvation. Christ has opened the way for all of those who believe in Him to repent and be saved. And for all the believing ones, 
Christ entrusts to you the gospel of the message to unbelievers. Show them the open door. You're not the door. I'm not the door. Show them to the door. Christ. Christ is the way. Let you and I be people who simply open the gate and say, run to Him. Run to Christ. Let unbelievers be like Christian who first heard the message of Christ who would close his ears. Salvation. 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 Run to it. Run to the, go- to the gate. Run to the door as Christian did. Call sinners to turn from their sin. Call them to see that there is no name under heaven by which men can be saved but by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no name greater. No name under which men can be saved. Christ has promised to help the church, to cause her to persevere in times of testing. And He will preserve you. He will keep you from being an apostate. He will keep you faithful because He is faithful. He has promised that He will gather you to Himself and that you will be in His presence forevermore. We shall see the holy city come down and we shall be in that city. Let he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.